The 920 KBEC Podcast Network is presented by the Slow County Real Estate Podcast with House Swayze. Up-to-date information on the local real estate market on your time. New episodes weekly at the podcast link at 920kvec.com and wherever you get your podcasts. California DRE 01111911. on the Central Coast on this Wednesday. Here we go, February 1st. Welcome to February 2023. I'm Dave Congleton. Good to be with you. Thank you for supporting live local hometown radio. Craig and I are with you all the way until 7 o'clock on this broadcast. At 4.05, Joe Brittingham for the Brittingham Financial Group checks in and reacts to the latest economic news out of Washington, D.C. And then around 4.30, we have uh, Tess Duffy and Andrew Sewell from the San Luis Obispo Symphony. They have a big event coming up, and they also have another concert coming up. So they actually have two big events. Michael Aaron Woody is in studio at 5.05. Let's talk about two different congressional representatives. One is George Santos, and the other is Ilhan Omar. Are they being treated differently? We'll hear from Michael. We'll hear from you. At 6.05, Jerry Shea picks his favorite state parks in California. It is a Dave Congleton show, always your hometown radio talk show. First up, we visit with Dan Fredman. Dan is a son of San Luis Obispo, born and raised in this town. Uh, music remains one of his passions, but he's gone on to become a big-time wine writer, promoter, and collector. If you want to know about wine, you reach out to Dan Fredman. He joins us now. Dan, good afternoon. Thank you. How's it going? Oh, I don't know. Ask Fairly. me at 4 o'clock. Yeah. Put the pressure on you. And... I neglected to mention you write the wine column for Slow Life magazine. I do. In fact, I've got the new issue right here. Hit hit the, the thing today, uh, all about Club Bubbly down in the creamery. All right. We'll talk more about that in a minute. So how did you get interested in wine, and why didn't you just go become a musician? Well, I tried to just become a musician, but uh, I'd gotten into wine a little bit earlier. My parents were would, would always have the bottle of Hardy Burgundy in the in the closet, and uh, on weekends they would drink Charles Krug and Charles and Louis Martini, and so I sort of grew up with wine, and I got a book when I was about eighteen or nineteen. My parents gave it to me, and it was about California boutique wineries. And it was really interesting, and I was playing in bands around town at that point, had older people willing to go into Cork and Bottle and buy stuff for me. And uh, <laughs> some of the wines that were in there, that were mentioned, uh, were available. My, my first big purchase was actually local. It was a HMR three-pack with the uh, Riesling and the Reserve Pinot Noir and the Reserve Cabernet. You remember your first purchase? You're a serious collector. Well, it was $25. <laughs> I mean, that was, that was a monstrous amount of money. But what's interesting to me is that you grew up in San Luis in, in the 70s, I would imagine, Yeah. primarily. And we weren't a wine country yet. No, but California was becoming one. And actually had been one for 100 years, but it was becoming a cool thing to, to be. All right. But so you remember your first three-pack. But then how did this become your avocation? 
Well, um, sort of by accident or by talent. I had uh, I, I did a couple years at Cal Poly, moved to Los Angeles for music school, and started playing in bands and with singers and lots of different projects down there. But at times, you wouldn't necessarily be making a whole lot of money. So I took a part-time job in a wine shop at, at the wine house in uh, Los Angeles, and uh, they realized pretty quickly that I knew more about wine than some of the salespeople who were there. So they moved me from stocking into sales, and so I'd bounce between the wine business and the music business. Was the education from your parents? How'd, how'd you learn so much? Well, it started with my parents, but it's it, it's actually like learning about music. You start with one particular thing that you like, then you listen to other artists similar to that, and you expand the circles of awareness and appreciation. So it's the same thing with wine. Started out with Zinfandel and Cabernet and expanded from there. Hmm. You were in L.A. for a while. You were in Texas for a while. Now you're back living in San Luis Obispo. And look how we have changed. Oh, boy, have we changed. It's phenomenal to see the the arcs of the wine industry here in San Luis Obispo. I, of course, came back to visit my parents over the, the years and um, definitely kept up in touch with World of Pinot Noir and Hospice de Rhone and other events like that. So I was, I was coming back to the city pretty regularly and staying in touch and seeing the wineries change, the vineyards change, what was planted and just so much progress. And as San Luis Obispo becoming the San Luis Obispo coast, it's really become a major force in the wine industry, particularly so, in California. How are we today, the wine industry on the Central Coast, compared to Napa, Santa Barbara, Europe, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera? Where I think do we we're stand? We're in really good shape because the wines are good. People are starting to appreciate wines that are more balanced and that work with, with food really well. And we're also at a really good price point where there's been a lot of commotion lately uh, about uh, the, the wine industry having severe problems because they're not reaching younger wine people. But we hear because of our price points, the quality, and the fact that it's such a great tourism destination, uh, we're, we're doing much better. Mm. Do, you, do you expect us to get even bigger, to rise more in prominence, or have we settled? No, I don't think we've settled. I think we're, we, we have the chance to rise in prominence, and the quality of the wines are improving. Uh, more winemakers are improving what they're doing, and the critics are starting to take note. Dan Fredman on this broadcast, am I allowed to ask you how many bottles of wine you currently own? Uh, I would say somewhere 1,500 to 1,800. Bottles of wine. Yeah. Uh, investor? You invest in these? You no. don't intend to drink these, do you? Oh, I do. I, that, that's my problem. If I had bought them with the purpose of investing in them, I'd be much better off. But I'm really curious about wine. And you can't, you know, can't see a label without wanting to know what it tastes like. Is it typical for uh, an aficionado like yourself to have more than 1,500 bottles of wine? What's typical? I I don't know. You yeah, know the industry. I, I, I don't. I, I, I know a lot of people with a lot more wine than this. I it, it's a, right at the point where it's kind of unmanageable. I I haven't done an inventory in I don't know maybe ten years. How often do you have a glass of wine? Pretty much every night. Yeah. 
but moderation is the key. I'm trying to figure out how long it would take you to go through 1,500 bottles of wine. <laughs> Depends on how many people I invite over. Uh, and, and when did you start the 1,500 collection? Uh, started when I was about 20 or so, and it was just... So a, it's a lifetime. Yeah. Bottle here, bottle there, all of a sudden it, it, you, you, you're saving more than you're able to drink. Wow. All right, we've got a lot to talk about with Dan Fredman. Stick around. I'm Dave Congleton. On AM 920, in case you're wondering, I have five bottles of wine at home, all of them gifts. And I was telling Dan a year from now, I'll probably still have the same five bottles of wine. AM 920, FM 96.5 News Talk, KVEC. Tomorrow we're going to have a conversation with Clint and Connie Pierce. Let's talk about rodeo. Let's talk about the Madonna Inn. Let's talk about uh, whatever. We have the Pierces are going to be here. On Friday, it's uh, 3rd District County Supervisor Dawn Ortiz Leg. And Gary J. Freiberg is just back from two weeks in South America. Lots of stories to tell. It is the Dave Congleton Show, Hometown Radio for the Central Coast, where we are in conversation with son of San Luis Obispo, Dan Fredman, wine writer, promoter, collector, wine columnist for Slow Life magazine. Our first text already coming in on the Stolberg Tatum text line. Question, how do you know when your wine has peaked and you better drink it now before it goes bad? Ooh, tough question. Because I, you, you figure out what you like with, with your wines. I like white wines with a little bit of age on them. Other people think that if it's, you know, two weeks later, it's too late. Um, the oxidation, the problem, you know, if, if the wine doesn't taste right to you, maybe it's a little too old. But then you just have it with food. It comes in, you know. Yeah, but fine. if you don't drink that much wine, how do you know that it's not supposed to taste like that? That's the problem. Okay. And that, th- therein lies the problem. I've, I've been, I spent a lot of years in wine retail. So you sort of, you taste things, you explain to your customers what it should taste like, they read the notes, hopefully they have the same experience. You ever send a bottle of wine back at a restaurant, are you one of those guys? Uh, well, when it's uh, flawed, yes. Okay. And, you know, sometimes you get into an argument uh, with, with the, the server, uh, but... And you go, hey, do you know who I am? <laughs> Never. <laughs> uh, you sent me this article from the New York Times. I found uh, very interesting. Headline is, the American wine industry has an old people problem. The state of the American wine industry is grim. This is surprising to me. According to a closely watched report that annually an- analyzes its trajectory, winemakers and advertisers are missing out on younger consumers by failing to produce wines that fit their budgets and neglecting to reach out to them with targeted marketing campaigns. This is called the state of the U.S. wine industry, making recommendations for more than 20 years. Found that the only area of growth for American wine was among consumers over the age of 60. The biggest growth area is among 70 to 80-year-olds. What's going on here, Dan? Uh, I think it's sort of like uh, the television industry going, you know, broadcast television complaining about uh, streaming and the Internet and DVDs or all sorts of other things. There's so many other options to wine right now, and the wine industry hasn't really picked up on it over the last couple of years, the last decade, say, with their marketing to younger people. 
And a lot of what is happening now is the packaging for wineries, they're marketing to people who are 60, 70 years old. So it's all uh, aspirational lifestyle sorts of things. And if you drink wine, you're classy and drink, you know, this is a $100 bottle, your friends will like, like you for it. The reality is, is that the young market, they want to know more about natural wines. They want transparency in what they're drinking. So what are they drinking? If young people aren't drinking wine, and to me young is under 35, what are they drinking? Uh, White Claw. They're drinking beer. White, White Claw. White Claw. Seltzer. Oh, okay. uh, malt beverage. I don't get out much. Well, and it, these things are huge in, in the market. But people are open. You know, rosé is kind of a gateway wine for people. And I, the, the wine industry has always assumed that if you get really inexpensive wine, that will turn people onto it and they'll move into other things. But that hasn't been the case for the last decade. Well, and the young people can't afford it. Yeah. They can't afford the expensive wine. Right. I mean, some probably can. And, you know, it, these days, premium wine counts as anything over about $15 a bottle. And... It's difficult going into a wine shop, and we have a lot of great wine shops in San Luis Obispo, but there's not a lot of of uh, stuff, you know, just basic table wine like you would find in, in Europe. So the biggest growth area, 70 to 80-year-olds, is that because they're the ones being targeted in the marketing? Is it because they're retired? Is it because they have the money? Is it because they know their time is limited and they don't care anymore? Or is it a combination of all that? I think it's a combination and the fact that they're used to buying wine. Hmm. A lot of people don't really start buying wine until their their 30s when they're, you know, uh, on, on a social sort of basis. And their other friends are, have moved into that and they're doing it. They start learning about it and it just becomes part of a social thing. In college, we drank Boone's Farm. Is that wine? Uh, legally, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we went to the liquor store. We buy Boone's Farm. Bartles and Jane yeah. turn people on to wine, and then they sort of move cheap. through things. Yeah, yeah. when you're young, you want the cheap stuff. Yeah. Mm. And that's not what we do here in, in San Luis Obispo or Paso Robles, uh, sort of the next step up. So how does the wine industry respond, and how do they reach the next generation and create more wine drinkers? Well, they're already starting to, and in, in, uh, easier adaptation to social media. That's been a big thing. Um, also, uh, FTC is finally listening to consumers, and particularly younger consumers. Uh, there's uh, legislation and regulations coming up where uh, wine labels will list ingredients in them, as well as maybe a, a calorie count, so people oh, know more what, what they're getting. That's if, that's if people look at calories when they buy a bottle of wine? Uh, some people do. And if that's the difference between somebody not wanting to do it, it messes up the design of the label a little bit and you know, the packaging, uh, particularly for an expensive bottle. You don't want to necessarily see that uh, on, on, you know, on your table in the restaurant. But, you know, it, uh, if, if that gets people to try something, that's great. Uh, back on this article, uh, this guy tracked through this tracking system, he's able to track 80 million consumer transactions since 2007 to paint a clearer picture for the 2023 report. He said consumers younger than 60 were even less interested in buying wine today than they were in 2007. It's worse than I thought, he said. 
I thought we would have made some progress with the under 60s. I've been talking about this problem for seven years and we still haven't reacted. We're starting to see some reaction. Alternative packaging. You get uh, wine in cans is becoming very popular. Stop. Wine in cans? Wine in cans. Oh, please. It's really good. There's a winery up in Sonoma called Winery 16600, and they put... Uh, wine in cans? Wine in cans. And there's also a uh, bag in box. The, bag in box. Yeah, it's got a, a plastic bag inside a box, so you get uh, three liters of wine in one box, fits into your refrigerator. It's easier to ship environmentally. It's much better than glass bottles. It's lighter. It's more fuel efficient. It's all recyclable. In fact, some people even use the bag and box to store water after the, the wine's gone. Oh, dear. So the, the wine in a can, can you get that like in a six-pack? Usually they come in four-packs because they're a little pricier. And you don't – but say like with Coke or Pepsi, I can take, taste the difference between soft drinks out of a can and out of a bottle. Can you taste the difference in wine out of a bottle versus out of a can? Maybe. I haven't tried it yet, though. Okay. But uh, with with the wine and cans, I, I usually just pour them into a glass anyway. Dan Fredman on this broadcast. So how important is the um, the label and the design of a bottle to the purchase of a bottle of wine? Because I know you do a lot of that stuff. It's really important, particularly mm-hmm. if you're buying, you know, if you're looking at a shelf. Uh, I, I was at... Uh, at, uh, where was it? Central Coast uh, Wine yesterday. And looking at the, the labels, and there were so many I'd never seen before, and they were so interesting, I wanted to find out who they were. And that's, you know, I do the, the same thing at Wine Sneak or any shop. If if you're looking at something. So you wanted to find out who they were, but it, did it make you want to buy the bottle? Yeah, a little bit. Really? Yeah, I mean, I, I I like design. I like colors. I used to collect comic books. So the thinking is is that if you know how to design a bottle, you know how to make a wine. No, that's why you have wine, you know, label designers, and you have winemakers. It's all part of the marketing mix. Yeah, but I I still think I have a valid point here, because why else? Why would you, why would you take a chance on a bottle of wine just because you like the label? To me, it's the assumption. Well, they. Look at the way they designed it. They must know how to make a wine. Yeah, no, you're not going to buy. I, you're not, not going to buy, buy that, that argument, are you? No, nope. I might buy the wine, but not the argument. Hmm. Have you ever bought a bottle of wine based on the design and been disappointed by the product? A lot. Okay, but it's just part of the part of the research. Hmm. Is there anything like Yelp for wine? Yes, there are a number. It, it's not. Yeah, there, there's there's a number of websites. There are wine forums where people write in and talk about things they like, and discussions ensue. Um, there are websites that are databases that are really good, where it has all the information, and everybody who tastes a particular wine can do that. All right, we are in conversation. Dan Fredman. He knows a lot about wine. He's collected wine throughout his life. And we're just chatting, getting an update about what's happening in the industry. We're off to news and traffic and weather. More of our conversation still to come. You're listening to Hometown Radio.
right, Craig, thank you. I'm Dave Congleton. This is Hometown Radio, where we are in conversation with uh, Dan Fredman. He knows wine. He writes about it. He promotes it. He collects it. If at any point you want to join in the conversation, either by calling in or texting in, that's fine. 805-543-8830 is the number. I just want to remind folks, you, you put together some stats here for me, Dan. Slow County wineries draw anywhere between fifty to 75,000 visitors per month. Wow. That's a lot. Uh, pretty, pretty big kick to the local economy. And I imagine a lot of it comes from outside the area. Yeah, we get a lot from Southern California and Northern California, and with direct flights coming in from Dallas and Phoenix and Oregon. Seattle, we, yeah. Seattle, we, we get people down from So th- there is such a thing as wine tourism. Very much so. It's becoming a, a much more important part to San Luis Obispo County. Uh, with all the, the local wine groups in Paso and in San Luis Obispo, we're doing a lot of outreach to target communities and taking our wines to other regions to uh, give them the chance to taste them and see how wonderful they are and get them here on their vacations. I know it's a ways off, but while you're here, go ahead and mention the Slow Coast Wine Classic coming up at the end of March. It's going to be the second annual Slow Coast Wine Classic. We're going back to Pismo Beach. Uh, starts Friday, March 24th, uh, doing a big winemaker dinner at, at Lido at Dolphin Bay. On Saturday during the day, we're, we're going to be at Vespera uh, doing seminars. Adam's going to, Adam Montiel is going to be the moderator of the seminars. Uh, there'll be a lunch. And then on Sunday, it's a sparkling wine, uh, not exactly a brunch, but sort of a send-off to send you home or out to visit wineries. Are tickets available yet? Tickets are available on the Slow Coast Wine website. But this event, this isn't for a beginner like me. This is for somebody like you or Adam Montiel. Well, it's an opportunity to go out and taste. So maybe you wouldn't want to go to the seminar, but you'd go to the sparkling wine tasting. We're also working on a thing with a couple of the wine bars in uh, in Pismo Beach to maybe do something on Saturday night so people could just come down, have a glass of slow coast wine and uh, without having to get all, you know, intellectual about it. I always ask the the wine people that come in. Sometimes they come in because you're kind enough to send them over. The, the, the idea of demystifying wine to the average person like me. I mean, yeah, I drank a lot when I was younger. I rarely drink, except if I go out to dinner, I might have a glass of wine. And I... Uh, my partner only drinks white wine, so I look for a white wine. We have a glass, and it's fine. But that's about that's about it. And I, what do I know about wine? I saw the movie Sideways, <laughs> and I don't want any Merlot. Uh, how do we demystify that? Because I, yeah, you got to reach the younger audience, but I think you need to go more mainstream. For so long, wine has been about class, and uh, the more expensive it is, the better it is. But the reality is, is that you you just want, you know, I, I like wine as part of my everyday life. It's, yeah, I get together with friends and we geek out over something. But it's, for me, it's sort of a, a key to understanding geography. When I taste a wine from some weird place in France or Italy, I'll look it up and see where it is and the grapes that are being used in it. And who made it? I mean, that makes it so personal. And that's why it's so cool being here in San Luis. All right. Here's my Bob Costa question. You're on a desert island and you're allowed to have four or five bottles of wine. What would you want to make sure you had with you? 
Ooh. For or five for dinner or, or just, forever. Just for uh, I let's see. I I, I like uh, Gamay. Uh, you know, in Cru Beaujolais. Really nice, even stuff. Edna Valley Pinot Noir. I like that. So when Beaujolais is not quite big enough, I like uh, Grunerveld Liner. I think Austria has some of the the, the greatest wines and great values in the world. Uh, Grunerveld Liner or Blaufrankisch, which both of which are now being planted on the central coast and are now available either here or, you know, and you can buy them in almost any wine shop in San Luis. Um, well, but let me stop you yeah. because, I, I again, I know nothing about wine, but a friend once told me that if you get Beaujolais, you've got to drink it relatively quickly because it doesn't last long. Well, that's Nouveau Beaujolais. Okay. And no, Cru Beaujolais is a grape that's made in a Burgundian style. I and, thought I had you there. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> So this is why a little bit of education is good, but yeah. a little more education would be better, or takes you too far off the deep end. Yeah. So how do I get that education if I want to know more about wine? We are in a wonderful point right now here in San Luis, where there are a number of retailers who have tasting bars, or they're tasting bars that have retail. I mean, uh, Club Bubbly, Saints Barrel, Central Coast Wine, Slow Wine and Beer Company, and Bottlecraft—they're all on Higuera Street. Just one street in town. You also have Wine Sneak, Region, which is in Hotel Slow. They've got uh, 40 different wines uh, in, in their machines. So I'm sorry, in their machines? Well, they have uh, like Enomatic machines. Oh, so. like that, that place that was on the corner, I just said before your time, on um, Osos and... Um, Monterey. Okay. There was one of the, you walk in and it was just machines. Yeah. Yeah. And you put your card in. And yeah. It, yeah. Didn't last long. But all these places have people who will guide you through and they can make suggestions of what they like and turn you on to them because everybody that I've ever met who, almost everybody that I've ever met that's working in a wine shop is sort of an evangelist for what they like and wines that they appreciate. Give us an example of an up and coming local winery. Someone who's really starting to make their move. Ooh. Um, you know, I've been drinking a lot uh, lately um, from Verdad, which is not a brand new winery. It's Luisa Lundquist. She has been on the, been, been working with Spanish grape varieties from since before anybody else. She's in Royal Grande at the Sawyer Lindquist uh, winery with her husband, Bob Lindquist. And she does terrific Tempranillo and Albarino, and they're just great with food and just great to kick back and drink with. Listener on the Stolberg Tatum text line, what about going into Trader Joe's and getting two-buck chuck? I, I'm, I'm not a fan. I, I know what goes into it. It'll get you dizzy. Wait, wait, wait. What goes into two-buck chuck? It's Central Valley. It's stuff that may not be the, the, the best farming methods. They may not, the, the, the people working for it are, are not necessarily treated as well as they, they might be in other places. Um, it will get you dizzy. It will put a smile on your face, and it is wine. But it's not, I, I think, you know, for the money, nothing comes close to it. But So is there a quote-unquote bargain wine that you might recommend? It doesn't have to be a two-buck bottle, but... 
I tend to go with the leader bottles of Gruner Veltliner and uh, Blau Frankischer's Weigelt from Austria. Craig has a question about wine and food. Yeah, I was wondering if there was a uh, correlation between the f- the food that someone prefers, like spicy, mild, with the kind of wine that they prefer. Yeah, you you pick the right kind of wine to go, or wine that's appropriate with it. If you're having spicy, well, not necessarily the food that they're going to eat, but the food they like. I used to own a cigar lounge, and I could talk to somebody. They'd come in and say, "I want you know this." I don't smoke cigars very often. But by asking them, do, do you like black coffee or cream coffee? Do you like hot salsa or mild salsa? I could ask them those things, and then I can get the cigar. Even though they were new to cigars, I knew they preferred a Maduro versus, uh, you know, uh, Honduras, you know, uh, Dominican because or Dominican Maduro because of what they prefer to eat. Is there something like that with uh, with wine? Usually you just pair what the dish is that they're having with the wine that's appropriate for it. Yeah, and certain wines with fish, certain wines with steak. Yeah, and but also if somebody likes big, bright food, you're probably going to like a big, higher alcohol Cabernet or, or Rhone, Rhoneish wine, Syrah, you know, big Grenache from a, a warm climate. And if I'm sitting in a lounge chair that I found on the side of the road in my boxer shorts, what wine should I have with that? <laughs> Ooh, <laughs> While uh, watching uh, reruns of All in the Family. Hmm. Give me the perfect wine. Uh, let me piggyback on that. I don't know if you're allowed to answer this, but what's a wine that's overrated? I'm allowed to answer. I don't know that I, w- I, I would. I would probably say right now, oh, that's a tough one. I, I think... Per, my personal preference, things like the Prisoner that are... The Prisoner. Which is a very popular wine. You can't hardly keep it in stock. The it's, Prisoner. Yeah. And it's a blend of Zinfandel and Petit Syrah and a bunch of other things. And it's high alcohol and a lot of people can't get enough of it. But you think it's overrated? I think it's overrated. Why? Because it doesn't... When I taste it, I don't get a sense of where it came from or even the grape varieties that it is. And that's one of the things that I enjoy about wine, is when I taste a, a, a Chianti, that it tastes like it came from Chianti. All right, I'll bite. Why would anyone call their wine the prisoner? Because oh, they had a really intriguing piece of art that they wanted to use on it, and they have marketed the heck out of it, and it's extremely successful. Well, is it because the wine's good or because the marketing campaign? Or probably a little bit of both, I It's guess. a little bit of both. It, the, the wine is, you know, it's big alcohol, beautifully made. I just don't like it. Well, well I will defer <laughs> to you. And that's, no, you don't. You, you defer to your defer, own palate. Oh, no, I, no, I don't have a palate. Maybe not you, yeah. Yeah, I, I, I don't taste... I, I, I don't... T- I, like, again, I go back to sideways and the fruit and the... And I drink a glass of wine. I don't know. Well, that movie is a, an ode to Pinot Noir. And yeah. Pinot Noir is, is a little more even-tempered and is, uh, you know, reflects where it comes from. And it, it's not as malleable as, as other grape varieties. I know the Hitching Post increased his business by more than a million dollars the first year after that movie came out. But what did it do to the Merlot industry? Well, tank the Merlot industry, but it, the <laughs> Merlot is coming back. People have been taking it seriously for the last couple of years, and there are some incredibly good Merlots coming out now. 
It's only taken 20 years. Well, All right. We're in conversation <laughs> with Dan Fredman. As you can tell, he certainly knows his wine. We'll come back for a final segment. We're live. We're local. You're listening to Hometown Radio. Name that movie. I'm I'm a music guy. I don't I don't know no movies. Sideways. Oh, okay. I played that for you. <laughs> Thank you. I'm honored. <laughs> yeah, Dan Fredman on this broadcast. He writes about wine for Slow Life magazine. He promotes wine. He collects wine. We're just talking about wine. I love this question on the Stolberg Tatum text line. A question I've always had: Why do restaurants charge so much for wine? It. It's a way for them to sort of repay their investment for having to buy wine now and store it or keep it in stock. Uh, it's usually based on what their wholesale price is. Some places take a you know take a take advantage of the situation. Yeah, but some. Yeah, it's one of the, the the few profit centers for a restaurant. So if you like going out to a restaurant. Uh, and if you like their wine list, I always recommend that you support it. Yeah, but then you see a $20 bottle of wine going for $80 at a restaurant. That's pushing it a little bit. Yeah. You, the calculation is usually three times wholesale, sometimes four times wholesale. Hmm. And so a $20 bottle of wine probably costs them 10 to maybe 15 so I'm I'm just I get it by the glass. I'll have a glass. Kathy will have a glass. And that's it. We have one glass. Yeah which is the best profit for the restaurant possible because the glass is usually about uh, 80 or 90% of the cost of the bottle. But you've got more than 1,500 bottles of wine at home, Dan. I imagine you bring your own. Yeah, and I pay the corkage and give, you know, if, if the servers are into wine, you know, give them a glass. And I, uh, I, I tip based on what the, the bottle would cost. Oh, that's right, because when you tip, you've got a tip for the bottle of wine, too. Yeah, and it's fair. It, it's sort of keeping keep, keeping the restaurants going, keeping the servers going. So maybe when I next time I go to Cafe Roma, I'll ask if they have wine in a can. <laughs> <laughs> well, if they're smart, they do. Yeah. Is it is it cheaper in the can than the bottle? Not necessarily. I mean, okay. a, a, I guess the eight ounce can is usually around ten bucks. I told you uh, during the break that when I wrote for the Telegram Tribune, I joined in August of 1989. My very first story that they had me write, and there was a wire story about how um, the wine industry was shifting over to plastic corks, plastic caps, whatever. And my job was to call some local wineries and just get comment and merge it into the bigger story. And I, I forget who I talked to. I imagine we've gone way beyond that. Yeah, plastic was not the, the the savior that we were hoping that it would be. Natural cork is probably the best way to to seal it, but for the fact of a, a chemical known as TCA, which smells and makes the wine taste like wet cardboard. And usually what happens is people blame the wine for that when it's actually the cork. So there are a number of different solutions that have come down the, the pike in the last four or five years, and uh, Neocork is one that, that I like a lot. Uh, used to have a lot of problems when I'm working big wine events. You would get a lot of corked bottles that were off, but uh, nowadays it's it's much rarer. Also on the Stolberg Tatum text line, what wine would make a good gift? Is there a local wine that I could give someone? Oh, 
Yeah, depending on your price range. Um, you know, people know. Let's say it's $40. $40, I would go, uh, I like Tally, I like El Lugar, I like Tolosa, I like Center of Effort. There's Center of Effort. Yeah. They're here, out here. It's it. They're in the building that used to be the uh, Corbett Canyon. Oh yeah. Winery. Yeah, yeah. And uh, just a really. What happened to Corbett Canyon? Uh, don't know. I, I seem to think they got bought by a corporation and moved into something else and sold again. I I asked that because I was always impressed by Corbett Canyon. In the old days, I had the morning show, and we'd go to ABC News. And as you know, during the news, they have national sponsors. And ABC News, for the longest time, was sponsored by Corbett Canyon. That's as the like, corporate ownership. And they're going the big money time. to do that. Yeah. Now, uh, Center of Effort is making maybe a couple thousand, four or five thousand cases a year, which is not very much. It's owned by Bill and Cheryl Swanson, who grew up in Morro Bay, and uh, he did very, very well in, in the corporate world and, you know, bought the winery. What local vineyards are getting national or regional attention? Lately, I mean, I'm you're hearing more. Uh, Tally's Rincon Vineyard is really good. Spanish Springs, Slide Hill. The thing about and oh, and Jesperson, which is right there by the airport. These people grow fruit for their own wineries, but then they sell to others. So you're getting wineries in Paso Robles, wineries in Santa Barbara, uh, and even further afield who are buying fruit from here, and they're using the names on their labels. Hmm. On the Stolberg Tatum text line, is Kim Crawford a good wine? It I is. don't know the wine. Tell me about the wine. It is a prototypical New Zealand Sauvignon Blanc, really grassy and just really assertive and very refreshing and reasonably priced. Hmm. All, all all pluses. Yeah. So I'm surprised no one has texted or called in with this question because it always comes up when we talk about wine. Do we have too many wineries in the county, Dan? No. How, How many do we have now? Well, Paso Robles has somewhere around 300. San Luis Obispo, probably about 40. But given the amount of land that we all have and the amount of water, and ultimately it comes down to economics. Who's selling, you know, what, what, what are they selling and how much are they selling of it? And are they able to stay in business? There's not a tipping point? Maybe there is. I don't know that we've reached it yet. Mm-hmm. And not everybody has a big winery and owns their own vineyard. There are people who are making wine in industrial parks, and uh, they're buying all their fruit and making it themselves. What are the odds? Because I know with restaurants, only like 10% of restaurants make it through the first year. What about for wineries? Wineries tend to go longer than that because usually when you start a winery, you still have a couple of years before you're actually going to be selling stuff. On the Stolberg Tatum text line, Suzanne. Hi, Suzanne. Has a question. Why are wine bottles uh, concaved instead of flat? I just ask them. Yeah, that's the first time. Um, that actually uh, is probably not a bad idea. It'd be easier to stack them. Um, I don't have the scientific thing, but that's one of the reasons I, I, I like boxed wines. Uh, I just heard about a company called Really Good Boxed Wine that is, they're 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 doing three liters, 
but they're sourcing good fruit, including Derbyshire up in San Simeon, which is part of Derby Winery up in Paso, but they have fruit in San Simeon, cool climate, and it's going into a box. Maybe the best wines for the price in the world are Austrian wines. I think. Tell me more. Well, they work with food. There's a sense of elegance to them. The names are kind of unpronounceable until you've been around them for a while. But for bang for the buck, Austria is the place. On the Stolberg Tatum text line, should I join a wine club? And if so, are there any you recommend? I like... I, I, I don't like the wine clubs like the Wall Street Journal or the New York Times. You're getting wines that are okay with fancy labels, but ultimately it's it's not worth the price. What you should do is go visit wineries here in San Luis, up in Paso, and if there's one that you like, the, the if, if you like the wines and you like the people, that's the club you should join. Most of the wine shops in town also do wine clubs. So that's another way. If there's a, sh- a place you like to shop, where I, I, I think uh, Club Bubbly has one um, and Wine Sneak has one, you know, you're going to get an interesting variety of wines at reasonable prices. Here's a wine industry joke for you on the Stolberg Tatum text line. What's the best way to make a small fortune in the winery business? Start with a large fortune. But um bump. The the The... Texter has true. a point. Yeah, it's it's true. It's very expensive to be in, in wine. We had a vineyard in when we were living in Malibu, and I can't tell you how much it costs to make kind of no wine <laughs> year after year, and then you get some out there, and you know it's time consuming. And what are you going to be enjoying tonight? I haven't thought about it yet. Uh, the, I mean, the, just, you just go home and say, okay, what do we feel like tonight? That's the beauty of of, of having, you know, 150 bottles at the house. And the rest are in storage. Yeah. You have 150 bottles of wine. Out of sight, out of mind. Uh, I guess. So you, you'll just decide on the fly. What's your column about in the brand new issue of Slow Life magazine? Wrote about Club Bubbly. It's a, uh, a, a tasting bar and wine shop in the creamery where they've got, uh, it's it's focused on bubbles, champagne, cava, prosecco, all the bubbles from around the world, including local, California. Now all they need to do is figure out how to get people to come to the creamery. It's, uh, get, get it's some critical mass. Quiet. It's quiet there. <laughs> uh, Dan Fredman, thank you so much for the conversation. I got about uh, 40 seconds for a final thought. Ooh, I, it's been interesting with wine because it's, it's like music. You never know enough. There's always another rabbit hole to go down and investigate. And that's what keeps me interested in it. Red or white? Yes. Okay. Rosé and sparkling too. And ports, sherries, natural, you know. I think after today, I will never drink two buck chuck again. Okay, and there... Well, given what you said... Plenty of other stuff out there. I never thought about it. No lack of wine in the world. All right. Uh, thank you, sir. Appreciate it. Off we go. We've got ABC Radio News. Craig updates us with time saver traffic and weather together. Then we'll hide the wine because Joe Brittingham is up next. Just kidding, Joe. We're live. We're local. This is Hometown Radio.
the 920 KBEC Podcast Network is presented by the Slow County Real Estate Podcast with House Swayze. Up-to-date information on the local real estate market on your time. New episodes weekly at the podcast link at 920kvec.com and wherever you get your podcasts. California DRE 01111 911.